0: Uh, Good to hear a good old hymn uh, sung, and uh, it's a tremendous blessing. All right, well, let's take our Bibles tonight and go to Matthew chapter 16. Go forth, boys, prosper. There is a handout uh, tonight if you'd like one as the boys come by. uh, Be sure and uh, grab one of those and uh, have those to be able to um, reference. I've tried with this series. Um, used to be a little bit different than our normal handouts uh, that we do with some of our other uh, series. Uh, I've tried with this series, uh, which it's been a while since we've been in this um, now because of circumstances over the last few weeks, but um, I've tried to give you pretty much what I have as notes is what you're getting. And the reasoning behind that is um, so that you have something you can take home and keep and have as a reference uh, to be a help to you a lot of times notes are more intended to kind of ha- help people follow along and be able to hit major points and things uh, these notes i'd really love for you to be able to uh, utilize uh, and have uh, just as kind of a point of reference because maybe it is that you'll have a conversation that'll come up uh, with a family member or coworker somebody that visits the church that says uh, what's the difference between a Baptist and another church or why are y'all Baptist and then you have these to look back at and reference and and be able to glean from and uh, have them as a point of reference to be a help to you there okay so tonight we uh, if you'll remember I know it's been a few minutes uh, because of the the weather issue a few weeks ago and then we had missionary and all the stuff that's gone on it's been a Few weeks since we've been in this series. Uh, But if you remember, we're going through a series and we're asking the question, why are we Baptist? And asking the question, not with an angry chip on our shoulder uh, and not trying to be loud about it. Uh, Although I will say this, I'm very thankful for the heritage that I have as a Baptist. And I am by no means uh, in any form wanting to take the name Baptist. Uh, off of any of our literature or signs or off our name or anything. Uh, that's nowhere in the equation of us moving forward. And again, that's not because of tradition. And it's not because we're angry about it. And it's not because we're we're just dogmatic and we're just Baptist, you know. It's because I believe there's some, some precedent set in the Bible. And there's also some significance to the name that allows us to be able to have an identifier, just like as you would reach into... Uh, your pantry and want to know what you're getting a hold of, uh, I'm thankful that the name gives us some ability for people to know what they're getting into uh, when they step into the doors of our church of knowing this, that's a church who believes these things, okay? Uh, And so that is what the purpose of the study for us to go through is to say this, we're looking at a distinctive uh, line of what a Baptist is, what makes us a distinct we're not just a denomination, there's a distinction between all other groups that are out there and Baptists, and so I'm very thankful for that. So, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18. I probably could spend all night just dealing with this verse, because there's a lot there. But we're not going to do that, because we're going to kind of take more of a topical approach to this. We've got a lot of ground to cover tonight. And I know some of you all probably want to get out so you can go watch a game or something like that and do all that stuff. So, let's all stand together. Let's read Matthew 16 and verse number 18. Matthew chapter number 16 and verse number 18. Which I am fully convinced that the Lord will never allow the Cowboys to be in the Super Bowl ever again. Because I would not be able to get any of y'all to come to church that night. (laughs) And So I'm fully convinced of that. Uh, and plus, somebody told me Dak saw his shadow, so six years without a Super Bowl. So uh, that's all the football I'm going to talk about. All right, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 and verse number 18. <clears throat> Here's a discussion that's taking place here between Peter and Jesus. And Jesus says this to Peter. We're just going to read this one verse. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter... And upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. Probably a very clear way of helping you understand exactly what this verse is saying is to put proper emphasis on where it needs to be placed. So we'll read the verse there again and give it a little bit more different emphasis on this. So here's Jesus speaking. He says this, I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter. And upon this rock. So he says, you're Peter, and upon this rock. So he's drawing an emphasis there between Peter, or the little pebble, and the boulder, which is Jesus. And he's saying, you're a guy I'm going to use, but it's not upon you that this church is going to be built. You're just a sinful man, but it is upon me, God, the person of Christ, that this church will be built upon and since it is built upon me, the gates of hell will not prevail. Right. And so it really gives a good emphasis there on those points. So let's talk about this subject tonight, the autonomy of the local church. May God bless reader's word. You can be seated. And thank you, as always, for standing on the Scriptures. For sake of time, I won't have a real uh, protracted and long and drawn-out introduction with this. Uh, But I'm thankful uh, during Christ's earthly ministry, he could have done many things, and he did do many things. But one of the key things that Christ did during his earthly ministry was that he established a New Testament church. Uh, Of all the things that he could have established, I'm thankful that he did the church because what a blessing it is to us. Could you imagine life without a New Testament church? It is hard to imagine Uh, that dynamic. The Christian life is not intended to be lived in isolation. God did not design you that way. He designed us to cooperate and work together and need one another, pray for one another, rely on one another, love one another, support one another, care for one another, and that happens within this institution, this organism that is known as a New Testament church. That happens within Bible Baptist Church, and this isn't something that man came up with. Instead, it's something Christ instituted, something that He began and now has been uh, continued on, and I'm thankful still resides and exists today. I am so thankful that we have a God-fearing, Bible-preaching church that loves the Word, loves the Scriptures, and has a desire to follow Christ and be, we say it this way, to be what Christ intended the church to be. And we're going to talk about kind of in the beginning of this what a church isn't, because there's a lot of people who would claim the name of a church that are very far from what the biblical definition of a church is, And I'm thankful we have a church that still is not trying to be trendy with all the shifts of everything that's happening in the world, but instead has said this, uh, we're just going to be what God said a church should be, and regardless of what the social trends are doing, let us be true to God's Word. And I'm thankful that we have that right here. Uh, in Bridgeport at Bible Baptist Church. I'm thankful there's other churches that are that way in our area as well that have a heart to be exactly what God has called them to be, to be a New Testament Bible-preaching, God-fearing church. So let's ask the question, what is a church? This is a great place to start. If we're going to talk about the autonomy of a local church and what a church is uh, as far as what God intended us to be, we need to ask the question, what is a church? So (laughs) this phrase has been so used and abused, that of a church, uh, and stretched that many do not have a good working definition of what a church is. Okay, A.W. Tozer said it this way, if a meaning of a word becomes too broad, it ceases to have meaning altogether. It's a good, good statement there, which means this. If we start to use a word so broadly, this has happened with worship. This isn't a sermon on worship, but the word worship has been used so broadly and in so many uh, occasions that oftentimes people don't even know what it means anymore. The true definition. And that has happened with the church. The church has been used to be uh, portrayed and defined so many different things. And if we're honest with ourselves, we use it that way too. I'll meet you at the church. See you at the church, right? We use it to define many different things uh, that maybe is not the true definition of it. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but it is something where maybe what we need to do here this evening is understand the biblical definition of what a church truly is. It'll help us tremendously with that. Okay. So let's start by answering this question, what is a church, by first saying this, what the church is not, okay? Uh, we'll start with the negative side of this. If we want to know what a church is, let's first start by saying what it isn't. So let me do this real quick. The church is not a building. Now, again, I just said this, we use it that way, and I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not asking us to change that. I, I do the exact same thing. Hey, did we lock the church? Hey, I'll meet you at the church, Hey, did you hear that that church burned down, right? We, we use the word term church oftentimes to describe the facility. And in a Western mind, in many people's mind, that is what the church is. It's the building. But in the scriptures, there were many churches that existed that had no facilities. Actually, that was more the norm of the first century church. When their churches would start in communities, uh, they didn't have a facility, so they would meet house to house. Hey, whose house are we meeting in this week? Could you imagine how that would work now? Hey, uh, Miss Darla, we're all coming to your house this week, right? She's like, Kyle, clean the baseboards, you know? If your wife has never told you to clean the baseboards, you haven't really lived, amen? But anyways... (laughs) You know, could you imagine if we all assembled in a house? There wouldn't be anything wrong with that. You know, Um, I know the church over in Balzora that's there, the Southern Baptist Church is over that way. Uh, Their facility burned down a little over a year ago, and they've been meeting in a community center over there. So uh, there's nothing defining of a church that it has to be a building or a facility. We also know this a church is not a denomination. Now, again, denomination could be kind of a broad term. Uh, What we mean by denomination is a collective group of a bunch of different churches or a hierarchy or a head or a name that's given to a group. We understand a church is also not a denomination. And then we'll really harp on this point a little bit later, but I'll just say it now. But the church is not and never has been all born again believers. So, in a universal, what they would, some people would maybe use the term a universal church. Uh, that is an unknown term to the Bible okay the church is a local thing uh, and so the the Bible is obviously not when we, we use the word church we're not talking about the eclectic gathering of all believers of every ilk and tribe and language around the whole world that there's just the church is that okay that is not what we mean by that as well so what then is a church what is the church Well, number one here, it is a New Testament institution. Now, we've already read Matthew 16, 18 there, where Christ looks at Peter and he tells him, I am going to build a church. And so he gives them that statement there, and he says, what I'm going to create here in the New Testament is something that is other than and different than what y'all have previously had as a Jewish people. We are now going to create something that is not exclusive to the Jew, but is open to the Gentile as well, and it will be called a church. And so Christ, in the New Testament, instituted and began the New Testament church. Now, again, we've got some verses here. We won't take the time probably to turn to and read all these just for sake of time. We're not going to do that. But 1 Corinthians 10.32 says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. They're, of course, drawing attention to some Old Testament things and some New Testament things. So that we could kind of say this, the Old Testament primarily addresses the nation of Israel. As you read through the Old Testament, those 39 books, uh, is there application for us today? Absolutely. It's God's Word. It's timeless. But we would have to be honest with ourselves and understand that the primary audience of the Old Testament are the Jews. Or Those of the Old Testament or God's people, the Jewish people, And there is wisdom that we can glean and things that we learn, obviously, from the scriptures, and it's applicable for us today. But it was originally written to the Jewish people. Whereas the New Testament is predominantly written to the church, right? It is given to churches. And most of the New Testament even is written for that purpose to the church at Rome, to the church at Corinth, to the church at Philippi, to the church at Ephesus. It's written to specific locations and churches in order to help them uh, understand what a New Testament church is supposed to be and Christians are supposed to be. So number two there, it is an assembly. It's not only a New Testament institution, but we also understand it is an assembly. Now, the word assembly is the Greek word ecclesia. Now, You're like, oh, great. We get to learn Greek tonight. I'll say this. I don't expect you to go home and become a Greek scholar and speak this Valentine's Day in Greek to your wife romantically. Okay, we're not trying to accomplish all that, but this is a good word to do a word study on of what it means. So it's used about 115 times in the Bible, the word ecclesia is, and it literally means this. A company of people called out for a specific purpose. So what an Ecclesia is, is it's a group of people that are called out to fulfill and accomplish a specific task or purpose. That is what the word is used. It is not, in Jesus' day, it was not used exclusively about what we would think about as a New Testament church. They would use Ecclesia to define many different called out groups and called out assemblies. What makes Jesus' ecclesia different in Matthew 16, 18 is Jesus did not change the meaning of the word of a called-out assembly. He simply said this, this will be my called-out assembly. This will be my group that is called out and set apart for a specific purpose and a specific job that they're going to have. So there's four important things concerning an assembly. Okay, so four things we're going to look at here that are important when we're talking about an ecclesia or an assembly, a group of people that are set apart and called out for a specific purpose and a specific job. Okay? So here's the important, four important things about this. First one is this, it has to be local. It has to be local. You never see church in reference to some universal entity. It goes contrary to the very definition and use of the word and the practice of said word in the New Testament. So much so that we could say this, with rare exception, every time the, the word is used, the 115 times it's used, it almost exclusively deals with a specific location, not some generalized, broad use of the word. So i give you a few verses here. Again, for sake of time, we're not going to turn to all of them. I encourage you to do some research on this. But Romans 16.1 deals with the church in regard to a location. The church at Rome. It's at a, it's at a place. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.2 deals with the church at a location. The church at Corinth. Okay, Colossians 4.16, you would go and visit the actual location there in Colossae. Okay? There's churches that are called out and they're saying to the church at, to the church here. The church is given with a specific local place. Now on a practical application on this, if this is a group of people that are called out to assemble for a specific purpose, it would be really difficult to get everyone from all over the world together in one place. Okay, If the word has to do with an assembly or a group of people called out to assemble together for a specific purpose, it would be difficult to do that. Think about a car, a use of an illustration of a car here. If we want to say this is a car and it's an assembly of a bunch of different parts, a car is made up of a bunch of different things, isn't it? it all, I'm not even going to try the name. I'm not a mechanic, so it's got a wheel and a motor and a hood. Right? It's got pieces on it. How absurd would it be to say, I have a car? So I say, Cool, where is it? Oh, it's a universal car. The engine's in Europe, and the, the tires are in Africa. You say, Well, you don't have a car then, right? The same way we would say, You don't have a church unless it is assembled. Right? It must be in a localized place where it is all together. In all but fifteen instances where the word church or ecclesia is used, it is of a specific, definite geological location. The Bible knows nothing of a universal church. Now, we try to be dogmatic on that because in many circles, the word church it speaks of this eclectic grouping of just universal, it's just everywhere. And we're just all part of the body. Well, in a sense that we could talk about the fact that we are all part of Christ, right? And we belong to Him. We're part of the family of God. But the word church, and when we think about the practical application of a church, is it is local assemblies. We have the church here at Bridgeport with a local place that we assemble and meet together. Number two, it has to be visible. Visible. People cannot come together and not be seen. Boy, COVID proved that, didn't it? (laughs) We'll have church. It'll be online. Didn't work. It it doesn't work that way. Now, I'm thankful we, through COVID, and we did the live stream thing, and I have benefited from that as well, but let's be honest, watching church on TV is like having a remote control controlling one of those fake fireplaces. You know what I'm talking about? It's like an LED screen, and it's got like a fake fireplace, and and there's no warmth, there's no, it's just a, on a screen, a little fireplace. It's like saying, man, look at how cool my fire is. It's nothing like having a real fire in a real fireplace and the warmth and energy that it produces, right? That's like trying to compare us assembling in person together to watching it. I'm thankful you can watch it on a screen, but it doesn't compare. It just doesn't. Because if you want preaching, uh, as much as I think I'm just the best preacher that's ever lived... Thank you, Miss Starla. I appreciate that. I will say this. I know, you, I, I know you can go online and you can find people who have dropped some better messages today than me. I know that. I'm not deceived by that. I know there are the likes of Jason Gaddis and Sam Davison and all these other guys that are out there. And if you want to go listen, you can find a lot better preaching uh, online. You can find a lot better music. Sorry, Brother Gary. Hey. But... <laughs> If you, to, you can find a lot better music online than you can find here. But I'm telling you, the interaction that God intended when we shake one another's hands and we greet one another and we encourage one another and we love on one another, there's something about the energy that is created of a people assembling together visibly that cannot be produced anything online, okay? And so, uh, not even on a practical point, though, we're mostly interested in what the Scriptures have to say uh, about this, okay? There is no invisible church in the Bible. It doesn't talk about there being some invisible thing. Uh, Philemon one twenty-seven. it specifically talks about, I want to see you, okay? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.17 talks about, I want to see your face, We could talk about other scriptures as well, where Paul is writing to a church and he says, I have a desire to come and be with you, right? I have a desire to come and see you. So when he talked about going to the church, when he went to the church, he said this, when I come there, I'm going to see you because you're together with one another, okay? Number three, an assembly must be organized. It must be organized. When we talk about an assembly, we are not talking about a mob, it implies some level of organization to this thing, a structure or a design to it. Colossians 1.18 would say it this way, And He, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. 1 Corinthians would talk about uh, spiritual gifts. Uh, I hope one day to preach through 1 Corinthians That'll be interesting. Pray for me if we ever get to that point. Okay? But preaching through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is some of my most favorite chapters in all the Bible because it talks about how God has organized a New Testament church that every single believer has been gifted by God with spiritual gifts and they are to use them to benefit the body. Amen. When I have other pastors ask me, what do you like most about your church as a pastor, a Bible Baptist church? What do you love about it? And one of the Number one things, if I had to kind of narrow it down to two things that I love the most about our church collectively. No, number one thing that I almost always point out is the friendliness of the church. That the people are kind and affectionate and friendly towards one another and to visitors. And I so appreciate that because I've been to so many churches as a guest where I have not felt that way. Okay? But a secondary thing that I love about Bible Baptist Church is the fact that there is a next man up mentality And there is a desire within the church that everyone serve in some capacity. And as far as uh, I understand, for the most part, the majority of the church has some capacity in which they serve in a ministry here in the church. And they benefit the body by executing and serving in that ministry. Whether it's working in the nursery or being a greeter or uh, cleaning out a toilet or whatever the case might be. There's all different kinds of ministries. And when we mention to folks when they come, uh, my dad's church, I'll throw him under the bus here, they have reached a point, their church is about, they run about 200 on Sunday morning, so you know, we had what, 140, 138 here this morning, so a little bit significantly larger than we are, and yet they pay somebody every service to watch their nursery, They've reached that point where they have to pay somebody because nobody wants to miss the services to do that. Now, listen, I'm not dogging on them. I'm just saying one of the things I appreciate so much about Bible Baptist, and it's nothing that I've done, you all just have a, a mind to serve and to be engaged in ministry. I so appreciate that. And listen, that is 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, talks about the idea that a church has a level of organization where there are members of the body and they're not disjunct all put together in a weird form, but they all have a unique job. The hand has a job, the eye has a job, the ear has a job, the mouth has a job. And when it functions together like it should as an organized unit, there's much that can be accomplished. And I'm so thankful our church has that mentality and that mindset behind it. First Timothy 3.15 would say it this way, And he is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The house is an assembly of different building materials, but they must be organized according to a plan, or else you have what? A pile of rubble. I mean, if you take all the building materials and just heap them in a big old pile, you don't have a house. But when they're put together in particular structure and order and organization, The foundations where it's supposed to be, the plumbing where it ought to be, the the walls are framed up as they should be. What you have is a beautiful home when it is organized and functioned together. Okay, number four, an assembly must be constituted. What do you mean must be constituted? What we mean by that is it must be made up of the right components, Acts 2.41 says, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them, speaking of the church, about 3,000 souls. So that we could say this, the church uh, must be assembled of, it's made up of the right components, which is this, saved, baptized believers who have covenanted together to do the work of the Lord. That, that's what Bible Baptist Church, where people come to join the church. This has become a weird thing in our society now. As a pastor, I get to have a lot of conversations, some even more recently with some of you all about joining the church and what that looks like. And sometimes people get offended because they have a, really, they have a bad baptism or they have a weird testimony that's not quite lining up with the Scriptures. And you have a conversation with them. You know, hey, at Bible Baptist, we want to be the church that God's called us to be. And what the church here is intended to look like is this. The church membership, those who are a part of the body, must be made up of those who are genuinely saved, scripturally have accepted Christ, and then have been scripturally baptized, okay, and been sprinkled or had some other thing done. They're scripturally baptized by immersion after salvation, by the right authority, in the right way, for the right reason... And then with those things, then they are able to be a part. That's the scriptural mandate that's given us. That's a hard thing. I'll be honest with you. That is an easy thing for a lot of pastors to dip their colors in because it is so tempting to have some sharp family come to the church and be visiting and maybe start giving and wanting to get involved in the church, all these things. And then you have that conversation with them and they go, I'm out of here. And it's so easy as a pastor to want to say this. Whoa, it'll be all right. We'll dip our colors. But you know, what you find with Jesus in John chapter number 6, when he preached the message about him being the, the bread of life, and they had to partake of him, and they forsook him, many forsook him, and, and Jesus, what you find in him is he never goes running after those people. Wait, never mind. I'll change my message. Just come back. Yeah. Instead, he turns to the 12 and he goes, are you going to leave too? Yeah. Right? And it's a great responsibility for us to recognize we need to have that same... We're not trying to run people off, but we need to be true to the gospel and true to what the Bible says. And then look at people and say, listen, this is what God has called a church to be, right? Local, visible, organized, constituted, the right thing. And this is what a church is supposed to be. And that's not really popular in our day and age. But That is what the Bible defines as what an assembly or a church is. So now we have identified this is what a church is. Quickly, we're going to do this. What does it mean to be autonomous? What does the autonomy part of this mean? Well, the word autonomy literally means this, the right to self-government. <clears throat> Don't pay attention to right, it's totally misspelled. And now you're all looking up there and paying attention to it because I pointed it out. Okay, really quick, let me give you some history. <clears throat> when the church was started by Jesus Christ during His earthly ministry, they loved Him so much they put Him to death. and then after that, most of the disciples were martyred, and the church was persecuted. Most of the New Testament references this truth, that where churches popped up, persecution popped up. Most of that was uh, inflicted by the very people that put Jesus to death, the Roman Empire. Somewhere around 311, there's a guy by the name of Constantine. He sees a burning cross in the sky. He has some kind of trip that he goes on, he sees a cross burning in the sky, and he sees these words, in hoc signo vinci, which he then, in Latin, means this, by this sign, conquer. And so he took that to mean this, I'm now a Christian, because I saw a burning cross in the sky. After that, Christianity went from outlawed to being the state religion, and from that you have the birth of what's known as the Roman Catholic Church. Now, without digging into all the history behind it, any time you have state and religion, and the religion is run by the state, you're going to know this, that religion's going to get corrupted. Yeah. Is there anything our government touches that doesn't get corrupted? <laughs> okay. So they touch the church, and of course this is a very corrupt government, the Roman Empire, study that out, and you'll see that it became very corrupted. Christianity was now a political thing and used for political means. Catholic pastors were paid by the state. Churches became filled with unbelievers. Slaves were granted freedom if they were baptized, just as an example. From this became many uh, uh, poor doctrines and bad heresies that came forth because of this, so much so that you had pedo-baptisms, like infant baptisms, baptismal regeneration, you get saved by me. Those all were born out of this. That's where it all came from. Christianity became wed to paganism because when they would conquer a nation, they would want the Gauls or whoever this other group is to now become Christian, but they said, we'll just adopt their pagan traditions and mix them together with Christian heritages. And that's oftentimes where a lot of the, even the holidays that we celebrate today came from. Okay? And so with all that, there's some major issues that obviously came about because of this unholy alliance of church and state. Let me give you a couple of them. Denominational authority over other churches. So you wind up with the pope arrangement, popes and bishops and archbishops and all that, and they have all this crazy authority. Church and state bond in persecution of any church outside of the alliance. Persecution of the church did not stop when this happened, it actually just changed. So Christianity became the state religion, but that simply meant this, anybody who didn't bow to their false state religion form of Christianity was burned at the stake, fed to wild lions, all kinds of crazy stuff happened to them under the name of protecting true religion. People weren't allowed to have Bibles, all kinds of stuff that was perpetrated by the Catholic Church, okay? This alliance obviously became more important than the church itself. Now, this is where the importance of autonomy comes in because a lot of these things are now born out of this. Now, remember, Baptists are not Protestant. We did not come out of this mess of the Catholic Church. We weren't a part of this. And all other groups cannot make that same claim or that same statement. It's one of the reasons why I love being a Baptist so much. So let me point out here just the importance of autonomy. First thing is this, no church has another church over it. As a Baptist, we simply believe this. As a New Testament church, we only answer to one person, that's Jesus Christ. We have no ruling hierarchy over us. There's no state, no organization, no body that dictates what we will do here at Bible Baptist Church. We have the Bible as our sole authority. We have an under-shepherd and a pastor, and we have Christ as the head of the church. I mean, that, that is how this thing works, okay? Uh, we also understand this with autonomy. No church should have denominational hierarchy over it, okay? There are groups, again, uh, Catholics probably the most clear defined example of this where there's then the Pope and the other group. I had a, a friend uh, that was a, uh, uh, his dad was a Methodist pastor in Springtown when I went to school there and uh, one day he told me he was moving and I said, why? And he said, well, the church is moving my dad to another church, And I said, Well, did the church get rid of him? No, the church loves us. They want us to stay, but the church is moving them somewhere else. That shows a hierarchical thing that's within a denominational thing that takes place there. Okay. Number three, there local churches can and should cooperate in work of the Lord. I'm thankful we are what we were called what's independent Baptist, but that doesn't mean we're isolationist. Right. We're not sitting here and we're just like we don't want to we don't have anything to do with anybody else. No, I mean we, we fellowship with other churches. Right? We, we have meetings with other churches and we cooperate with other churches. And, I mean, just because we're independent doesn't mean we're isolationist. Acts 15 shows that churches work together. Most of the New Testament shows that churches cooperated together among themselves throughout the New Testament. Three areas that Baptists do a great job in working together. Actually, I say this, better than any other group. Training for the ministry, supporting missionaries. Per capita Baptists are way better at supporting missionaries. We blow every other group out of the water. We are more mission-minded than any other group that's out there and establishing churches. Right now, there is a resurgence among especially independent Baptists of church planting that is dying among all other groups. But Baptists are being very aggressive right now about going and starting new churches and planting new churches. We have been very good at those things. And those are cooperative things where we work with other churches to accomplish those goals. So real quickly, we're totally out of time, but I'm going to do this to you a quick Okay, Type of church government. There are five of them here. I'm going to give it to you real quickly and we'll, we'll be done. I wish we had more time to deal with this. But the first one is papal. This would be like uh, the pope, dictator, what one man says goes, an authoritarian form of leadership. Episcopalian, the authority rests within the bishop or the clergy, meaning there's a group of men. So uh, a Presbyterian leadership would look like this. I'm the pastor, what I say goes. Okay? With the leadership of the church, you just do what we tell you to do. Okay? Understand when I did that, that was explaining Okay, everything. Presbyterian, the authority is in sessions. The Presbyterian Synod assemblies rather than the church, meaning that there are hierarchies or groups, organizations that exist outside of or above the other things. So in the Presbyterian, that's how that works. Number four, the congregational. This is what we would be. The authority rests within the membership of the church. So in a congregational, again, we've got some verses here in Matthew 18, 17, uh, Acts 1, 15 through 16, particularly verse 24, 25, and 26, Acts 6, 1 through 5, Acts 13, 1 through 3, 1 Corinthians 5, and a a plethora of other scriptures where there is the church that chooses its pastor, the church that calls out its deacons, the church that sends out its missionaries, the church that makes decisions, the church that votes. That is all within the Bible. And actually a good portion of what America is today And how our forefathers set up this nation was based on the Baptist and how we ran our congregations and how we work. So in our congregation, the way we are structured is why we have a business meeting is because the authority rests within the church. That's important to recognize. The authority doesn't rest within the pastor. The church has the authority to baptize. The church has the authority to minister the Lord's Supper. Okay? Not the pastor, those are placed within that. And then we can say this, a paternal. The church is run the same way as a family is run. God leads through a man, he does not lead through majorities or committees. Okay? So really quickly, though the church is run congre- uh, congressionally, it is a theocracy, not a democracy. Now simply what we mean by this is Jesus is the head of the church, the pastor is the under-shepherd of the church, And then Christ's will is conveyed to the church in specific matters as we carry out the Great Commission. Okay, So what what we mean by that is, just because we we take a vote, it doesn't mean, well, majority rules. We understand that Christ is the head of the church. And His word has supreme authority and Christ ultimately rules. And He places for the benefit of the church an under-shepherd or a pastor that helps lead the church. Like a shepherd would lead sheep. But we also understand that ultimately it rests within the congregation with Christ as the head who would show us his will through his word and an under-shepherd to help lead us, then the church would decide on matters uh, that they would vote on. This is something unique to Baptist. There are many churches who maybe have adopted this form of how church government and church function works, but it was first originated within the Baptist because it was taught within the pages of this book. Now, I'm thankful we were going to follow that mode of how a church functions and operates because it's what the Bible says. So that's what we mean by a church autonomy, local church autonomy is where the right kind of church following the right procedures of autonomy and having our own self-governance that we are self-ruling, self-governing under the headship of Christ. Let's all stand together as we come to a time of invitation.